So if you have access to a Bible, we're going to read Daniel chapter 11. I'm going to begin reading in verse 2, and I'm stopping where I am. We're going to read through verse 39. And the reason that we're stopping there is I see a transition in the text at verse 40. And we'll talk about that transition next week in our last sermon in this Daniel series as we wrap out the book with the end of chapter 11 and chapter 12. Text says this, now I will announce the truth to you. Three more kings shall arise in Persia. The fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he's become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a warrior king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and take action as he pleases. And while still rising in power, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall grow strong, but one of his officers shall grow stronger than he and shall rule a realm greater than his own realm. After some years, they shall make an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to ratify the agreement. But she shall not retain her power, and his offspring shall not endure. She shall be given up, she and her attendants and her child and the one who supported her. In those times, a branch from her roots shall rise up in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall take action against them and prevail. Even their gods, with their idols and with their precious vessels of silver and gold, he shall carry off to Egypt as spoils of war. For some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall invade the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall advance like a flood and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Moved with rage, the king of the south shall go out and do battle against the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, which shall, however, be defeated by his enemy. When the multitude has been carried off, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall overthrow tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude, larger than the former, and after some years he shall advance with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south. The lawless among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, not even his picked troops, for there shall be no strength to resist. But he who comes against him shall take the actions he pleases, and no one shall withstand him. He shall take a position in the beautiful land, and all of it shall be in his power. He shall set his mind to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of peace and perform them. In order to destroy the kingdom, he shall give him a woman in marriage, but it shall not succeed or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn to the coastlands and shall capture many, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an official for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, though not in anger or in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person on whom royal majesty had not been conferred. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom through intrigue. Armies shall be utterly swept away and broken before him and the prince of the covenant as well. And after an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and become strong with a small party. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province 
and do what none of his predecessors had ever done, lavishing plunder, spoil, and wealth on them. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and determination against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall wage war with a much greater and stronger army, but he shall not succeed, for plots shall be devised against him by those who eat of the royal rations. They shall break him, his army shall be swept away, and many shall fall slain. The two kings, their minds bent on evil, shall sit at one table and exchange lies, but it shall not succeed, for there remains an end at the time appointed. He shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. He shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but this time it shall not be as it was before. For ships of Katim shall come against him, and he shall lose heart and withdraw. He shall be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay heed to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces sent by him shall occupy and profane the temple and fortress. They shall abolish the regular burnt offering and set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with intrigue those who violate the covenant, but the people who are loyal to their God shall stand firm and take action. The wise among the people shall give understanding to many. For some days, however, they shall fall by the sword and flame and suffer captivity and plunder. When they fall victim, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join them insincerely. Some of the wise shall fall so that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the time of the end, for there is still an interval until the time appointed. The king shall act as he pleases. He shall exalt himself and consider himself greater than any god, and shall speak horrendous things against the god of gods. He shall prosper until the period of wrath is completed, for what is determined shall be done. He shall pay no respect to the gods of his ancestors or to the one beloved by women. He shall pay no respect to any other god, for he shall consider himself greater than all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these, a god whom his ancestors did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses by the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall make more wealthy and shall appoint them as rulers over many and shall distribute the land for a price. That's a lot of information, isn't it? Well, we're not going to cover every bit in detail of all of that. In fact, if you want to do that, there are innumerable commentaries. I read one this week uh, from the Word Biblical Commentary series, and it laid out all of the historical markers that Daniel foresaw. But I do want to make a couple of comments here about these so that you get a general sense. But the majority of what I want to talk about today are themes, but we're going to deal with the details just briefly. So I want to give you a sense of the likely meaning of Daniel chapter 11, verses 2 through 39 at the beginning. So that's how we'll start. And then I want to discuss prophecy in general, the themes that are being picked up by Daniel, and I want to talk more particularly about why it is that God reveals future events sometimes, when other times he is completely silent and does not. Because whatever historians believe, whatever theologians believe, the text presents this to us as a future prophecy of what was going to happen, and that's the way I'm going to deal with it. But before we do that, I just want to talk about this text in its context. This is going to be somewhat quick. You can go to a commentary to fill in all the blanks. So first, if you look at the text, chapter 11, verses 2 uh, through 4, detail the fall of the Persian Empire and the rise of Alexander the Great of Greece. 
That's what's being described there. And it is true, just as Daniel says, Alexander reigns a fairly short time. His empire is still growing at the time he dies. He reigns from 336 BC to 323 BC. Now, to put that in context, the book of Daniel, Daniel is living in the 500s BC. So the text presents this as a prophecy that's 150 years, 200 years in advance, and that's how we're going to read it. But he is absolutely right that Alexander re, uh, reigns for a short time, just about a decade, and he dies mysteriously. And when he dies, kind of the title of Greek empire goes to some of his descendants and gets broken up, but the real power remains with four of his generals, which is exactly what Daniel prophesies. If you want to know it's know all of their names. You can look that up in a commentary. But the two that most concern Daniel are the two that most concern Israel. And that is the southern general Ptolemy and the northern general Seleucus. These are two of Alexander's generals. And they do become the most powerful leaders of what becomes the successors to the, to the Greek empire. So verses 5 through 19, then if you're continuing in the text, they discuss various conflicts over a long period of time between the empire, the Ptolemaic Empire in the south that's centered in Egypt and the Seleucid Empire, which is in the north. It covers modern day Turkey, Syria and the other lands to the east. They become the most powerful. And obviously one is right above Israel. The other is right below Israel. So their conflicts affect Israel continually and they continue to go back and forth. So that's verses five through 19. It's interesting because Daniel's vision mentions at least 13 of the rulers and we can discover all of these historically of these two empires and their various things from marriages to betrayals to wars. Oh, I mean, he's got them all here and, and historians can validate uh, most of it. Then when we get to verse 20, so this is chapter 11, verse 20, there's a change. What Daniel is beginning to talk about here, or what he's beginning to see is the rise of the last, last of the powerful Greek emperors of the Seleucid dynasty, the Northern dynasty. His name ends up being in history, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. And um, he's, he's covered in the books of first and second Maccabees. You can read about him there. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus records some of his acts. And of course, Daniel prophesies some of what uh, he ends up doing. So he is an interesting king um, Daniel, you can read, Daniel's pretty accurate about the wars he has with the Ptolemaic kingdom in the south and how those things go. But what makes him very important for Daniel's prophecy is what he does to the temple in Jerusalem. So it's a little mysterious. Daniel has this version. Uh, there's some more detail in Maccabees. Again, I said in Josephus, Antiquities of the Jews, which is a history book from the ancient world, uh, covers others. It's a little difficult to tell how it all works, but we know two things for sure. And that's what shows up here in Daniel. And that is that Antiochus convinced uh, the, the priesthood in Israel to sacrifice unclean animals in the temple of God, most likely pigs, but animals that were not kosher, so in violation of the law of Moses. And the second thing he did was he traded, the Seleucid Empire had claimed Apollo as their god. And to make a little sense of this, and we've been talking about this for a while, but maybe um, a little review would be helpful. In the ancient world, each city-state, each kingdom had their own god, and they thought of, of 
wars among people as also wars among their gods in the spiritual realm. So the god of the Seleucid Empire was Apollo, one of the, one of the Greek gods. And Antiochus IV exchanges Apollo for Zeus. So Zeus is the head of the pantheon. He's the most powerful god. And so that's what Antiochus does. You see some of the language in Daniel that he trades um, the gods of his people for a god that they had never known and uses that god to help him defeat um, his enemies. Now, there's no doubt that there's a spiritual element to what Daniel is talking about. Um, Antiochus IV changes loyalties. Now, we're still talking about kind of the spiritual beings that God had placed over the other nations of the earth that had fallen and were in rebellion against God, but he's changing loyalties. And as a way of signifying that, he establishes a idol to Zeus in the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem. And that is what is called here the abomination that causes desolation. So those are some of the salient details of what Daniel is focusing on that Antiochus IV does. And we're going to have to ask the question, why does God want Daniel to know these things? Why does he want the people of Israel to know them? But before we get to that, let's pick up some of the themes that Daniel picks up. Because what's happening in all this intrigue among the leaders of the Greek empire is as old as time. He's picking up themes from prior to the flood. The first theme is Cain and Abel. It's not, not the first in Genesis, but the first that you see coming out of this story, Cain and Abel. Now, the story of Cain and Abel is two brothers, both who brought an offering to God, both of whom wanted to please God, or at least to get God's favor. Abel's sacrifice was accepted. This is in Genesis 4. Cain's was rejected. Cain became jealous of Abel. And in order to get God's favor, or at least to remove a rival to God's favor, Cain murders his brother. And that is the story that unfolds throughout the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We're told when God decides to destroy, and I know the flood is in chapter 6, but the first 11 chapters up to the Tower of Babel are what I'm talking about. But when God decides in chapter 6 of Genesis to destroy the earth with a flood, he says the earth is full of violence. And that the most popular people in those days, the Nephilim, were warriors. They were killers. So they were following in the line of Cain. All throughout this prophecy of the Greek rulers, you can see Cain and Abel playing itself over and over again. One person trying to gain power over another person, doing it through lying, doing it through deceit. That's how Cain murdered Abel. So that is a theme that continues to play over and over again. Secondly, the Garden of Eden is constantly here in this history that has been told in advance. Rebellion against God and rebellion against rulers. There's a lot of autonomy here. The Jewish people are revolting against their rulers. So you have rebellion against human rulers, but more importantly, you have rebellion against God, especially in Antiochus IV, this last king. He sees himself as a god. He profanes God's temple. He convinces God's people to break the law of Moses in the most sacred of sanctuaries where God had promised to make his presence known. He has them sacrifice unkosher things and he puts an idol there. And there seems in the text to say that there would be complicitness among the people of Israel with him. And that is rebellion against God. If the Jewish people of that day, if some of them conspired with Antiochus, it would have been 
for the sake of saving themselves and their nation. And so often the desire to see things survive leads to compromise. But that's the Garden of Eden where Satan says, oh, you don't have to listen to what God said. He's afraid of you. Just do what you need to do to get what you need to have. And God's not going to do what he threatened. That's essentially Satan's uh, deception of Eve. And Eve, of course, eats of the fruit, does exactly as he says. And he does seem to be right early on because God is merciful. He doesn't kill them right away. He banishes them from Eden, but he doesn't strike them dead. And then God continues to try and bring them back to himself. So Satan is both horribly wrong and horribly and horribly right at the same time. And that story plays itself over and over again. So we see that Garden of Eden over and over again. We also see the sons of God alluded to here. This is in Genesis chapter six. And we talked about it last week as the spiritual forces, uh, the spiritual beings that God had assigned to rule the nations of the earth while he took the people of Israel for himself as his own allotment on the earth. That was in Deuteronomy 32 verses eight and nine. The sons of God, these spiritual beings that are tasked with ruling the other nations have rebelled against God and they are leading their people into sin and even joining a conspiracy with the Nakash, the serpent, um, to, to deceive God's people and to overthrow God's rule on the earth. And so they're here too. And it's, not, it's going to become more pronounced as we get to the end of chapter 11 and chapter 12. But even here, it's here um, when he says that. Uh, chapter 11, verse 38, he shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these, a God whom his ancestors did not know. This is most likely Zeus. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses by the help of a foreign God. That's the one place that we realize there are spiritual forces involved in this. And Antiochus IV somehow aligns himself with a God who is represented on earth as Zeus, but is a spiritual being. And he helps him to win some of his battles. At least that's what Daniel is, is foreseeing. So the sons of God that deceived the people of the earth early on and joined them in their conspiracy that helped to precipitate the wickedness of the earth before the flood, they're still here too. Lots of echoes, isn't it? Of early Genesis here. And then finally, the flood itself is a day in which God decided to punish the people of the earth. And that idea that God has set a time for wrath is here as well. In fact, the implication of this text is that the Jewish people are suffering all of these things. And they're caught up in the intrigue of the Greek empire and tossed to and fro by all these kings because they are still in judgment. They had broken the covenant. And even though they had gone 70 years into exile and they were able to come home, their exile did not end. They're still caught up in competing powers and never able to control their own destiny and become Torah observant themselves. And you can see that in verse 36. It says, the king shall act as he pleases. He shall exalt himself and consider himself greater than any god and shall speak horrendous things against the god of gods. And this is the sentence. He shall prosper until the period of wrath is completed. That means God has designated this period, not everything he's doing but the time in which he has to do it has been designated as a period of the wrath of God. That's very similar to what the flood was. It was a period of the wrath of God, much more extreme, but still here it is. So those themes that recur over and over again in the opening chapters of Genesis are recurring in the life of the Greek empire. 
And that's a way of saying that they recur in the life of every empire. In many ways, the chaos of early creation, that tohu and, vo and vohu, are playing themselves out among the Gentile nations. And Israel has been caught up in it, not because they had to be, but because they had rejected God. And now they're at the mercy of the nations around them. So they're caught in this thing. Now we want to ask the question, why does God want Israel to know that this future is coming with such specificity? Why would Daniel need this amount of detail at this time? And what does it mean for us? Well, a few observations. First, God does not reveal the future for personal gain. Secondly, even though much of what God reveals about the future can be terrifying, we're going to talk a little bit about how Daniel must have received this prophecy. It must have been terrifying for him, but that's not the point of the prophecy. God is not prophesying the future to terrify the people, though his prophecies are sometimes terrifying. So why does God reveal the truth? He does do it to warn us like he did with Israel in Deuteronomy. But most often when God prophesies something that's coming, he does it for two reasons. For repentance, so that we might turn away from the path. When God predicts something, he tells us what is on the road ahead of us. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes there's still time to change roads. This is what he says through Jeremiah before the exile. He says this in Jeremiah chapter six, he says, stand upon the roads and seek the ancient paths and walk in them, and you'll find peace for your souls, but you would not walk in them. It's so that we might turn. You might say, well, then why does he continue to prophesy the future through, through Jeremiah when there is no more time? Well, that's for the future, so that their children would know how to return, so that once the time of God's wrath was spent, they would know what it meant to walk with God. So sometimes the prophecy is for the future, but it's always for repentance, either for the people to whom it is spoken or for their children or their grandchildren. And then he also reveals the future so that we might not despair. And that's really what gets us at the heart of why he's telling Daniel this. Remember, Daniel has been reading Jeremiah's prophecies. This is at the beginning of chapter nine, which sets up this whole context. And in Jeremiah's prophecies, Jeremiah had told the people that they were going to be in exile for 70 years. Now, you could read Jeremiah's prophecy as saying that once they had spent their 70 years in Babylon, the punishment was over, that they could come back and everything could reset. In fact, there's every evidence that's what Daniel expected, which is why he was praying. The answer he gets is, more or less, and I'm paraphrasing, don't think that when you're allowed to go back to Israel, all is forgiven and all is done and everything's gonna start back up again. He tells him a future of hundreds of years where Israel is still under God's wrath. They are still being punished. They still are not self-directing. In fact, Daniel didn't know this. Daniel, Daniel dies before any of this happens. So it's likely Daniel didn't even know how long this was going to be. We know now in hindsight that much of what he saw was hundreds of years in the future. But we're going to get to the rest of what he saw at the end of chapter 11 and 12, which projects all the way out to the second coming of Jesus.
So the truth is, the breaking of this covenant was going to last to the end. What a horrible message to receive. Daniel thought he was days, months, years at the most from going back home, having the covenant restored, having the king placed back on the throne of Israel, and starting over with God. That's why he prayed. He was probably excited. He was fasting to know when. He had survived the 70 years of exile, and now he was about to go home, and he was appealing to God. And then the answer God gives is, this is just the beginning, Daniel. Yes, the 70 years are coming to an end. Yes, you'll go home, but it won't be home. It won't be home forever. And so he tells the story of an empire Daniel doesn't care anything about. What does Daniel care about Greece? He wants to know about Israel. But God is telling him, your fate is tied with Greece. And then with Rome, that's as far as Daniel sees. And the church and Israel have been tied up in Europe ever since, to this very day. God did not want Daniel to despair when it didn't work out. When the 70 years were up and they were not restored. You see, Jeremiah spoke both of the 70 years and of a future day when God would make a new covenant with the house of Israel and he would restore their fortunes. Jeremiah spoke of both of those things and Daniel thought, therefore, that they would happen one right after the other. But they didn't. There were thousands of years between the 70 years and the full restoration of the people of God. And God is giving Daniel a glimpse of that. But at the heart of this prophecy, Daniel is told, all these nuances, all these, this treaty, that treaty, this war, this war, this murder, this conspiracy, that's your life, Daniel. You are now amongst the Gentiles forever. What a terrible thing and how true to history has that been. It remains true to this day. So what can you take away from Daniel chapter 11. Well, I hope you can at least allow Daniel to speak in its own terms and realize that God sees with great detail what's coming. Not only the details of how things occur, but he knows how it's going to affect his people. And he is still determined to allow these things to play out. We talked last week that the 77s are most likely 70 Sabbath cycles, 3,500 years from the giving of the law, that God has set for this story to play itself out. And Jesus comes in the middle of that history to help us to course correct, to help us to receive in the midst of history the teachings of the kingdom that will come at its end. But his true coming, his coronation, the day in which he puts his feet on the earth and rules, as Jeremiah foresaw, as Daniel prayed for, is future even still for us. But these prophecies remind us that that day is coming, that nothing that has happened from the days of Daniel till now has been a surprise. His people need not despair. We may suffer. Our fortunes may be caught up in the nations of the world, but that is by God's design 
Israel was scattered because of judgment. The people of God today are scattered because of God's mercy on the nations. But over and over again, we're in a cycle of the early days before the flood repeating. But the reason it doesn't get so bad that God has to destroy the whole earth is because he causes each nation to fall before it can finish its work. Jesus, the king chosen by God, comes to the earth and establishes peace and righteousness and judges all the nations that have ever been for the way they use the time they were given and the power allotted to them. And he makes his judgments and he invites those who have had faith in him to enter a kingdom, not of human making, but of God's making. As certain as these events were in the Greek empire ahead of Daniel, so that future is ahead of us. And whatever season in which we find ourselves, the book of Daniel reminds us that it is moving in the direction God has set. And that should be hopeful. Israel's not on a road to getting back what she lost. She is on a road to receive what she never had. We are not on a road to get back what we lost. We are on a road to see a king like we have never seen and a kingdom we could not possibly imagine. That's the hope, but it's despair for those who don't want that, who want what they've lost. I'm sure Daniel was heartbroken to find out in these prophecies that Israel would never again be what she was. What a terrible, terrible revelation for this man. And yet, it is the hope of God, because Israel never was what she should have been, and we have never seen what should be. Letting go of what's behind, pressing on towards what ahead, what's ahead, is the journey of the people of God, a journey into the kingdom of Jesus, a kingdom not of this world.